Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. That stage. They're strange fruit. They won't let me sing nowhere. No clubs, no money, no nothing. You gotta understand, baby. Right now, I'm in a situation. Look, you said we could beat this, Billy. I need some now. Blood on the leaves. You're like a hammer. Come right back and it hit harder than before. He's singing it for all of us. Ain't no other Negro star bold enough to do it. Black body swinging. I'm being followed. I'm not gonna count in no fizz. In the southern breeze. She's made something of herself and you can't take it because she's strong, beautiful, and black. Strange fruit hanging from the trees you think I'm gonna stop singing that song your grandkids will be singing strange fruit and no that was not Billy Holiday but a pretty powerful rendition of the iconic and tragic performer channeled through Andra Day, singer, songwriter, and now star of the Lee Daniels-directed Billie Holiday biopic, The United States vs. Billie Holiday. Revisiting her traumatic years struggling to survive Jim Crow USA, while J. Edgar Hoover and his FBI hounded and persecuted her to her death focusing on the political impact her performance of the anti-black lynching anthem Strange Fruit might have on dissension and protest in this country. A song written by Abel Mirapol, who himself happened to adopt and raise the two young boys, a fellow accused communists, Julia and Ethel Rosenberg, executed in 1953 by the McCarthyite U.S. government and attributed to Hoover in the film, censoring and criminalizing Holiday's performance of Strange Fruit, quote, it's un-American and it provokes people in the wrong way. And phoning into Arts Express from Brooklyn, USA, is Rob Morgan, who stars in the United States versus Billie Holiday as her last husband before her death, mobster Louis McKay. Morgan discusses quite a few of his movies considered right now for film awards this past year, including The United States vs. Billie Holiday, as well as the Tom Hanks World War II drama Greyhound and Morgan's starring role in Bull as a rural Texas part beast of burden part gladiator, aging bullfighter, and what it has to do with the buried history of black cowboys in America. And Morgan's own musical turn as the uncredited Miles Davis in a movie. First, some scenes from the United States versus Billie Holiday, then Rob Morgan. She was thinking of something more special. I'm downright flashy, you know. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Billie Holiday. Reporters keep asking me, Billie, why you do the things you do? This is what I tell them. NAACP says Billie Holiday is the voice of our people. I think we should integrate the audience for this show. Let's change it up a little bit. You know, blacks and whites sitting together. You know what you're getting yourself into when you decide to come on the road. Get out my goddamn clothes. I'm going to take everything except your bra and your man. <laughs> Which one of my songs is your favorite song? Strange Fruit. Yeah, it's a song about important things, you know, things that are going on in the country. This holiday woman's causing a lot of people to think the wrong things. It's a starting gun for this so-called civil rights movement. Those lyrics provoke people. Y'all got a plan? She's a drug addict. Exactly. I cut strange fruit. I want to sing the damn song. It's for your own good, okay? I sing it like I want. Southern 
off that stage. There's strange fruit. They won't let me sing nowhere. No clubs, no money, no nothing. You gotta understand, baby. Right now, I'm in a situation. Look, you said we could beat this, Billy. I need some now. Blood on the leaves. You're like a hammer. Come right back and it hit harder than before. He's singing it for all of us. Ain't no other Negro star bold enough to do it. Black body swinging. I'm being followed. I'm not gonna count in no fears. In the southern breeze. She's made something of herself, and you can't take it because she's strong, beautiful, and black. Strange fruit hanging from the trees you think I'm gonna stop singing that song you grandkids will be singing strange fruit is this Rob Morgan uh yes ma'am Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. How are you? Okay. Now, I wanted to ask you about the United States versus Billie Holiday. What are you up to in that film? And what can you say about Billie Holiday as a victim of McCarthyism, the song Strange Fruit and its impact on her life? And what do you think really killed Billie Holiday? Maybe that's too many questions at once. <laughs> first, <laughs> first, what are, you, what are you up to in the film? Uh, well, I get to play uh, Louis McKay, uh, her last uh, husband. Um, so, and I'm uh, have the pleasure of working with Lee Daniels yeah. as the director. What was uh, that was, like? That was phenomenal. It was such a beautiful experience. Lee was a, a very giving director. Uh, he created such a safe space that allowed all of us to come and play. Uh, uh, Andre Day, when you see her. Uh, she plays Billie Holiday. Uh, when you see Andre Day play it, uh, you're going to be knocked, knocked out of your socks. She's phenomenal in the movie. Gives us so much uh, to see this woman come from being a singer to play this very leading role uh, as an actress of Billie Holiday. And, and, and the way she stomps it is, is amazing. You know, yeah, you got Trevante Rhodes in it also. Um uh, Tone Bell is in it. So, yeah, we had a, a great time. It's, it's, I'm very looking forward. Hopefully uh, the uh, pandemic situation we're in right now will be let up so we can all enjoy that in the theater, you know. Mm, it's yeah. it's going to be a good movie. And what can you say about Billie Holiday's A Victim of McCarthyism, the song Strange Fruit, and its impact on her life? And what do you think really killed Billie Holiday? Uh, I mean, I, I can't say what really killed. You know, I don't know that detail, but I would say uh, the impact was uh, just again the fear of uh, a public figure potentially uniting the population. Uh, uh, Billie Holiday's song that she uh, recorded, "Strange Fruit," had that potential. You know, it had the potential of bringing a serious issue to the dinner table with people who weren't uh, privy to that kind of world. So, uh, yeah, I think that's what that song brought on her life. And uh, um, she she dealt with it in a strong manner, and she could, at least from a little bit, I, I, I was taught about it. And um, I'm, I'm appreciative of the movie uh, Billy Holiday versus U.S. versus Billy Holiday. I can't wait for uh, people to see it. What interested you in becoming part of this rural Texas regional filmmaking production bull? And is it a culture you're familiar with, or did you delve into research about it for your character, Abe? Oh, man. Um, well, I was honored that they uh, chose me to play the character Abe and to be a part of this production. I uh, want uh, to help uh, bring the fact that... Uh, the original cowboys and cowgirls in America were black men and women, which is something that's rarely told because when it's often seen in movies, uh, it's portrayed 
uh, by something other than a black man or woman. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I thought that uh, the real life aspect of how they was trying to tell the story, like Andy Silverstein's uh, um, directing style, uh, that kind of uh, a documentary filmmaking style, I thought that would be something fun to be a part of. Um, uh, and to spend uh, five months in hot Houston, Texas, and uh, Austin, Texas, and Oklahoma, and Denver, you know, uh, in the rodeo world, arena, a world that I haven't been directly connected to, but was uh, super excited to to learn and discover and, and be welcomed by the uh, people of that community and see what drives them. You know, I thought it was a very cool thing to, to be a part of. So I was super excited to be a part of the movie. And what can you say about, that was my next question, what can you say about contrasting Bull as a contemporary Western with the traditional Western and who has gotten to be included in Westerns or not? Well, I mean, I can just say uh, a, a movie that goes into a community um, of black cowboy who was a uh, bull rider who uh, gets banged up to the point that, you know, he can no longer be a rider. So now uh, he, he, he wants to still be a part of the world. So he becomes a bullfighter. And that is a character in the arena that is uh, highly respected and regarded because he's the guy who saves the cowboys uh, when they fall off the bull. He just distracts the bull from uh, harming the cowboy. So, um, you know, uh, that element um, is something that I, I haven't, haven't seen in traditional Western, the voice of the bullfighter. And then you get to see how passionate and loving these people are uh, in real life through Abe Turner and see his relationship with the uh, girl in the movie who put, who's played by uh, Amber Havert, uh, which I don't think you really see in the uh, traditional Western, that kind of relationship between a, a black man who's in his uh, 50s and a teenage white girl. You know, um, I think that's something that could possibly be of a more current story that Bull has captured um, because these relationships do exist. I got a chance to see it when I was down there uh, because in the Bull rodeo arena, there's no color line. It's just like eight seconds is all that matters. And if you can get out of it alive, you know, um, it's more about just saving the cowboy and the rush that the bullfighter gets for being a part of that world is something that uh, you really can't describe unless you're down there amongst the people and hear it in their voices as they describe how good it feels to be a part of a picture album book that's like shown around the community. And really that's all you have to show for like getting banged up, getting a, a bullhorn through your rib cage or uh, getting your spleen torn out, uh, having to be rushed to the emergency room because the bull uh, butted you in the face and you lost all your teeth. You know, uh, like, I don't think you really see that in the old school western, but that, that type of uh, energy is in the movie Bull. You see it more present day. Did that, did that help answer yeah. your question? And I was wondering, because there seemed to be such a lack of racial conflict in the film, or let's say an absence of racial conflict in the film, especially in these racially divisive times that this country is in right now. That was quite a surprise. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, um, because I, don't, I think it's more of a human story than a race story. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I think the film is... is lays out uh, more of an experience that every human being can relate to instead of a narrow-minded personality that would try to exclude because of uh, conditions of race of of that nature. But it also shows, you know, the interests of groups of people like the uh, 
Uh, you had the young uh, white team in the movie. Uh, yeah, you know what particularly interesting to them, like breaking in a house and you know uh, vandalism and, and drinking and of that nature. You know, being kind of carefree. And then you had the uh, group of young uh, black kids that was like, you know, on a barrel learning how to ride a bull, you know, uh, tending to, to horses and things of that nature. So, you know, I mean, if you want to be of a, of a critical eye and look at it that way, but I think what the film was more touching on was a, a human story, you know, instead of a, a race story. And what are you up to in Greyhound, co-starring with Tom Hanks? And what's it like working with Tom Hanks? Oh, Tom Hanks is a phenomenal actor, phenomenal person. Like when they say he's the nicest guy in Hollywood, I truly believe it. Uh, from my experience working with him, played Greyhound. We uh, was in Alabama. Uh, yeah, no, we were in. Uh, where did we shoot that at? Oh man, I know it was in Louisiana. <laughs> And, um, yeah, that was a while ago. You asked me. Oh, it was a while ago. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, it was a great movie, man. And what's it like working with Tom Hanks? Oh, uh, it was fun. It was uh, like watching a master at work, you mm. know. Um, yeah, watching, uh, picking up the gems and seeing how cool and collected he is under, like he was, because uh, he wrote the piece too. Ah, you know, yeah. yeah. So to see, you know, Tom uh, manage all those streams and do it so gracefully was was a treat to see. And what are you up to in the film? Uh, I play the the cook, and um, one of the things about being the cook is at that time, uh, even though you were a cook, you still had the responsibilities of being a fighter. You know, so you still had to uh, jump on a gun whenever it came time to get down for war. So that was something also uh, mind blowing to to figure well, to figure out and play, and also learn in my real life. You know what I mean? That was the beauty of this uh, career that I have is that I get to delve into so many different. Uh, lifestyles and, and find and discover so many different things that have happened in life because of doing research and things of nature. So yeah, I played the uh, the, the cook hand and um, to, to learn that you still had the responsibility of fighting and cooking and, and taking care of people and all that uh, was, was amazing. And one more project of yours, What's it been like playing Magic Johnson's father in the TV series Untitled Lakers Project? We shot the pilot. Um, that was real fun, working with uh, Adam McKay uh, out there in uh, sunny Los Angeles, uh, depicting a time when the Lakers uh, drafted Magic Johnson, and I got to play his son, Irvin, Magic, uh, Irvin Johnson Sr., uh, was was super exciting and fun and, and hopefully and from what I understand it got picked up and uh, we were going to shoot more episodes but again things uh, got so yeah and you played the I had a question about something I saw you played the uncredited Miles Davis in Monica Z please explain <laughs> oh yeah that was uh, that was a while ago also I don't even think they kept that in the movie uh, <laughs> yeah, that was fun. I was looking forward to that. Um, man, what, what, who? I don't even remember. That was like a New Zealand film or something like that, or French or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I didn't even see that movie, Prairie. They didn't even <laughs> show me that. So I mean, I can't even speak on that to be honest. Okay. You know, that's that's one of the things about uh, you know being an actor and doing these movies, everybody thinks that the movies we've done, we've actually get, got to see. But there's a lot of movies sitting on like uh, hard drives and, mm. and computers that yeah. either didn't come out or movies that came out and just didn't go anywhere or, you know, you didn't, I didn't even get to see. So I haven't even seen that movie, mm. Monica Z. I wow. know, that's a tip, right? I don't know, maybe it's somewhere on the internet, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and getting back to Bull, 
What would you like audiences to understand about your character, Abe, and about this film? Oh, what I want audience to understand about this character, he is, that is, um, you keep going, keep um, you're always going to be a benefit to somebody, even though you don't realize that somebody's always watching and learning from you, and there's always a way that you can enhance somebody's life or teach somebody something that you've experienced. Um, if you're going to beat yourself up, use a feather, don't use a brick. You have enough people in the world trying to beat you down with a brick. Use a feather. Be gentle with yourself. And have fun, you know? And what are your thoughts about the significance of the choice of title bull? Because symbolically, you seem to be a bull as well in the film. Uh, yes, ma'am. <laughs> uh, I think we all have some bull in us. <laughs> You know, we all have some bull in it. Uh, and also, uh, I think it's just a cool type. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can't forget it. can't yeah. forget it. And one last question. I did want to ask you how you're holding up during this quarantine and staying at home. And are you okay? Oh, I'm I'm great. I'm kind of a loner anyway. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm... I'm all right, I have my guitar. I'm trying to learn, get a relationship with, get better with. I'm trying to be a, a stronger writer. So I've been doing some writing, going back and forth with a writing partner, creating and uh, looking forward to coming out on the other side of this this uh, quarantine even more polished and ready. Well, speaking of writing, what are your thoughts about how the content or nature of films will change? because of this crisis, how stories will change. How stories will change? Uh, I'm pretty sure we'll get a lot of stories of people in their homes by themselves. We'll probably get like one location uh, story uh, because that's what people are going through right now. Um, will people be excited to see that and be reminded of that? I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think people will want to... Uh, be reminded of it, but uh, hopefully the creativity will, because uh, you know, lack lack of, of resources creates uh, creativity. You know, you you go deeper. So um, maybe we'll find even uh, more creative stories out there. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Rob Morgan, for okay. calling into the show. No, thank you so much. And you stay safe and well. And you too. You too. Okay, bye. Right, bye-bye. In the United States versus Billie Holiday is being released on February 26th. And next up on Arts Express, veteran actress Kathy Morardi, best known for standing up to deranged domestic violence boxer Robert De Niro as Jake LaMotta in Raging Bull when she was just 17 years old and not too successfully as a brutally battered wife in the film. What was director Martin Scorsese thinking? Moriarty is back this time around in this unusually male-driven crime genre as a take-charge gangster herself and badgering mother of her reluctant hitman son, played by Costa Rican-born actor Daniel Zavada in Flinch. First, some scenes from her many memorable characters, which you may recognize, then Kathy Moriarty. How you doing? All right, what are you doing? Eh, nothing much. What are you doing? Oh, that your car? No, it's my brother's. Did you ever meet my brother? I worked on you so long. I'm about to say I saw you say hello to me. I worked on you so long. I can't walk. I look at somebody the wrong way, I get smacked. You think you're right or something the way you're feeling? Yeah, you're I wrong. Am right. No, you're wrong. Look, I am right. I'm tired of having to turn around and having both of you up my ass all the time. I don't know what you're talking about. Why don't you tell me, huh? <laughs> Why'd you do it, huh? Paul, what a nice surprise. How are you, Paul? All right. You missed the spot. 
You can't be too careful. Right. I couldn't take all the creeps making passes at me in the clubs. Hmm. So when I landed this job with the bouncers to protect me, I thank my lucky stars. I think in Cuba, a girl like you would need an army to protect you. You know, you shouldn't complain so much. I bet you say that to all the girls. Oh, you're my first American beauty. Really? And I'm the Statue of Liberty. Well, Sorry. that's when you dump people, okay? When they're still on top, before they lose their popularity and drag the show down with them. Excuse me? All right, look. I have a public, okay? They write me letters. More Montana, they write. Look at these! Celeste Talbert is a menopausal hag. Let's see more of Montana Moorhead. What are you looking at? Listen! Cut the crap, okay? If you don't show yourself right now, I'm gonna have you arrested for trespassing. Hey, hey, jeez. Calm down, lady. Rose, I want to believe you when you tell me something. Did you dump these bags or not? Buddy, this isn't a law problem, okay? You tell Joey Randone if he does not like my garbage, well, then he should stop soiling my sheets. Why don't you tell me about it, huh? I don't know what you're talking about. Why don't you tell me, huh? huh? Get off Did me, you fat pig! streets you don't stand a chance that's what the family's all about you do want me don't you david in the weirdest way because you're this close dyslexic dalmatians found it yeah hi perry how are you hi how are you and welcome to our show well thank you okay now this <laughs> okay now you're a really now you're really amazing in this wild movie. Lynch, as the overprotective to say the least, no nonsense mother of a hitman who scolds him about cursing, no cell phones at the dinner table, and brushing his teeth before bedtime. So how much fun was it for you getting into the character of Gloria? It was um like differentiating where it's okay to go out and kill somebody, but make sure you brush your teeth before you go to bed. <laughs> and uh, no cell phones at the dinner table. It was a challenge, but not really, because um, Daniel Zavato is probably still amazing. And from the moment I met him, he was like, hi, Mom. <laughs> um, I just fell madly in love with him. And, I, and his name is Joey, which is my own son's name. Uh. So um, it just, he just made everything so easy, along with Tilda and Cameron Van Hoy, who wrote and directed, um, open for suggestions all the time, and we kind of just went for it. Um, it was definitely a bit of a labor of love. Uh, it was 106 degrees, and, um, but nothing but, but fun and laughs and Memories, even on our one day off, I mean, everybody would kind of get together and and uh, have a meal and just laugh some more. It um, it just it was a really good experience. I enjoyed doing this movie. Hmm. Now, Fletch is also unique for a hitman movie in that the women are the strong characters. You and Tilda, who also played I Am Woman's Helen Reddy recently. Uh, how amazing is she? Yeah. Right? Well, what did it mean to you to be part of a usually male-driven genre with Take Charge Women this time around? That's a really good question that I don't know if I have the answer for. <laughs> um, I kind of never thought of it that way. And now that you bring it up, it was definitely that way. Um, I like that. <laughs> I like I like that. I like the fact that it was uh, that you recognize the fact that it was women strong and it wasn't all about men. Um, and, and it was. I mean, you had a lot of different personalities on set, but the casting was pretty unique, and everybody blended so nicely. It, it was very much a family affair. There were no trailers, there were no complaints, there were, and if they were, they were, like, far away. We really just all hung out under a tent in between. There wasn't a lot of downtime, um, so it was rigorous. But, uh, you know, the fact that the women are, are pretty darn strong in it, 
thank you for recognizing that. And, yeah, I'm going to take it as a compliment and run with it, saying yay for us. And when you look back at your first and your Academy Award-nominated breakout role in Raging Bull, you filmed when you were just a teenager. What were your thoughts about it then and watching or recalling it now? It's funny. I think it's the 40th anniversary for it right now. <laughs> I, and, um, you know, I mean, that was definitely one of the most experiences, uh, uh, greatest experiences I've ever had in my lifetime. Um, given that kind of an opportunity, given that kind of meaning and, uh, and thought process and everything I could possibly learn, um, I probably wish I was a little older. Hmm. Um, that I would have taken it probably more serious and learned more. But I will be forever filled with gratitude, Robert De Niro, Martin Scorsese, Joe Pesci, and all the people involved for that opportunity and for the time that they took out to, you know, handle me with, with kid gloves and for very their kindness to me, especially on days where I didn't have a clue. Um because the movie was shot through somebody else's eyes, I wasn't really allowed, even though I was playing a person, I wasn't really allowed to play that person. It was playing it how somebody else saw, uh, you know, uh, perceived that person. But um, they taught me a lot, and I'll be forever grateful to Mm. them. And with roles like Flinch, what do you look for in characters to play? Um, I just always hope when I read something, and if I like it and choose to pursue it, I will always look for a role that I feel I can bring to life and bring something to it. And if there's no need for that, then there's no need for me. I like a challenge, and um, that's why I guess I pick very odd roles sometimes. Mm-hmm. But but um, I, I like a challenge, but... I don't want to do it unless I feel like I can, you know, become that character and bring it, give it life, you know, and give it life and form that person, even just for the one moment, if you can become that person and bring something, I think that's a good day. Mm. And you once said, Robert De Niro taught me how to listen and to be part of the conversation. What can you say about that? Did I say that? Yeah, in terms of acting, yeah. <laughs> he did, because, well, I'm big on improvising. That's why I'm very big on building a character, creating something. Because if you can create a character and be in that moment, Raging Bull, there was so much improvisation in it. And actually, in Flinch also, even though it was very well written, um, Cameron gave us a, a, a loose hand of, what would you do as the character? He's a good director. He's a really good director. And he has a good eye. We had a great DP. But um, De Niro did teach me how to listen so that if you can develop a character in any essence uh, of, of that way, um, whatever he said, I could respond to, whether it be on a piece of paper or not, which in Raging Bull, most of it was not. You know? Um It was like one of the biggest tools ever, and it taught me how to improvise. Mm. And you've also said, quote, the truth is ever since I was little, I've wanted to be an actor more than I ever wanted to be a movie star. Please explain. Jesus, where did you get these quotes? (laughs) Um, Explain. I never, I just like creating characters and playing them. Um, My whole life, I mean, I'm doing this 40-something years now. I kind of stuck to myself. Nobody really knows too much about me. And I like it that way mm. because I wasn't big on the glamour part and the Hollywood part. I'm, I'm kind of big on the reading and the acting part and writing. And that's how I chose to, you know, that's a choice that you, and anybody who wants to go into this field, I think should make early on. And um, it's a choice that I was given the opportunity to make. I um, kind of stayed out of the public eye as much as I could, and um, I enjoyed that. And, you know, my kids are somewhat grown, not yet, but, you know, they're all over 18, and we live a very nice, quiet life. Love it. Now, are you coming up in anything next? 
I saw something about a film, Last Call, where you play an enigmatic Mrs. C. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's a little enigmatic is a good word for her. <laughs> I haven't seen it or anything yet. I just heard about it. But, um, yeah, that's coming out, too. Um, yeah, it's been, you know, you forgot after with the pandemic and everything, nobody could work. And you kind of feel like you get lost in the shuffle along the way, like, will this world ever open up again? But, um, yes, Miss It Last, they, it was called Craps in a Bucket. I think it's called Last Call now. Yes. And, I mean, the amazing Bruce Dern, um, which is one of the reasons I wanted to do it, so that I could work with him. Taryn Manning, who I love, who plays my granddaughter, Jeremy Piven. Um, there's a huge cast, Gary Pastor. There's a, a, a huge cast in it, and, you know, they called me at, like, 11 o'clock at night. So I just hung up on them <laughs> because I, I, you know, I was like, why are you calling me at 11 o'clock at night? Anyway, I ended up doing it and we had, we had a great deal of fun on that as well. And, is um, there... and I, I, I heard it's good. I played this Greek enigmatic grandmother. <laughs> I don't know how good my Greek accent was, but that'll soon to be told. Right? <laughs> and what is the film about? Um, the film is about, uh, Jeremy Piven, now it's a while ago now, so I'm not going to remember everything. He comes back to save his town, this lovely little town, and not let, um, all these people come in and take it over and make it very corporate. And it's, um, about how important it is growing, like, where you grow up, mm. your memories, um, what it, what, how it formed you in, in your life. It's weird because... Where I grew up, like two days ago, they had this huge fire. Mm. They burnt down, like, our neighborhood of every place that we went to since we were 10 years old that we still stop at now. Mm. And it was just so sad. So anyway, it's basically about that relationships that had occurred before that, that grow now. Mm. Um, and it's just a nice kind of family piece with all the, the jigsaws of um, who's coming, who's going to, you know, try and infiltrate the town and take over. And uh, they end up saving the town, and that's nice. And, you know, people that had relationships before rekindling. And is there anything else you're coming up in? Uh, um, 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 nothing I really want to talk about oh, okay. right now. But, <laughs> yeah, I'll be, I'll be shooting something, but I like to wait until... At least I shot it, you know. Yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and you've appeared with Robert De Niro in three films. What's it like working with De Niro? And would you say he's anything like his tough guy persona on screen? Uh, not to me. I mean, I've known him <laughs> since I'm 17, and he has been nothing kindest, one of the kindest people I've ever met in my life, and that's through the years. I mean, I did Raging Bull, I did Copland, then I did Analyze That, and he's a very smart, unique um, individual that I absolutely adore. He's a wonderful father. Um, he's just um, he's just legitimately a really, really just great man, mm. and um, and I love him dearly. And he's you know, if any time I have a question or or I want advice, or just anything, just to say hi. He always picks up the phone. He's um, he's a really good person. But yeah, his tough guy image. Well, I don't think he really ever used it on me, so I'm all good. <laughs> and I think we have time for one more question. Why should people see Flinch? Um, I think they should see Flinch because I love the way it was shot, the writing and the directing, and to watch um, Daniel Zavato and Tilda. They're just absolutely two amazing young actors that have really just come into their own. Mm. And uh, Cameron Van Hoy, he's directed and produced before, but uh, he's got it all going on. Um, and it's a good movie. Yeah. It's a good movie. It's, it's more of a, of a family tale than a wise guy, you know, um, hitman tale. Yeah. It's, it's more about... Um, a unique triangle within a family. And it's well done. Mm. It's well done. I'm happy to see that they're releasing it, and, um, and uh, people will see it. 
Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Kathy Morarity, for calling into our show. Well, thank you so much, Perry, and you have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. And Flinch is out now in virtual cinemas. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with Bro on the Global Television Beat and with TV's Forgotten, the working class and indigenous characters on the small screen and connections to colonial capitalism, joblessness, real estate porn, a rundown sausage factory stand by the sea, and, quote, the richness of the interiors of most TV series designed to blend seamlessly with the advertisements which surround them and where a problem is solved in one minute by an appropriate commodity. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, TV's Forgotten, Indigenous and Working Class Series, Mystery Road, Don't Forget the Driver, The Connors, and Superstore, Working Class TV, Few and Far Between. Network, national, and streaming TV is filled with characters living a lavish lifestyle, and or one relatively untouched by the problems that beset the majority of populations under Western capitalism. The richness of the interiors of most television series is designed to blend seamlessly either with the advertisements which surround them, where a problem is solved in one minute by an appropriate commodity, or with other streaming service fare which reinforces the idea that lavishness is omnipresent and to be aspired to. Can you say, Emily in Paris? A series which counters this characterization is Don't Forget the Driver, a recounting of the put-upon life of an aging English seaside bus driver. Peter Green, Toby Jones in a series he also co-wrote, lives in a dying seaside resort of Banyar Regis, a smaller and more desperate Brixton, or in the U.S. a Coney Island or Asbury Park, past its day in the sun and haunted by its memories of former glory. Peter is a single father whose daughter can't wait to leave the town. He has care of a racist mother plagued by dementia, and he ignores his would-be girlfriend. His plight is summed up each morning by his beat-up old car that only starts when he takes a hammer to it. Toby Jones is hilarious in the role, a British Bob Newhart, able to grind out every laugh possible from the dry acceptance of his lot in life, including putting up with a brother, also played by Jones, the apple of his mother's eye, who has cheated and swindled his way to his promised land of Australia, where he affects an Aussie accent. In each episode, the beleaguered driver pilots another group of passengers to an obscure destination, none more hilarious than the group of septua and octogenarians, the series is set in the 80s, who barely survived the trip to Dunkirk in France to cheer on the British fallen at their gravesite. Unbeknownst to him, on the way back, he is unwittingly part of a smuggling ring, bringing in a teenage African female stowaway, Kayla, in search of her brother in London. It's Kayla's presence that enlivens not only Peter's life, but also those around him, making his daughter more resolute about her path in life and prompting Peter to accept the relationship of the erstwhile owner of a rundown sausage stand by the sea is offering him. This crossing of an elderly European with an African refugee is becoming a staple of Euro representation. Its original and best rendering is Aki Kirismaki's La Havre, where a retired fisherman encounters and hides an African boy, assisting him on his journey. A bleaker and dystopian version of this trope is the Dardenne's La Promesse. The current Netflix film The Life Ahead has Sophia Loren as an aged prostitute who takes an African boy under her wing in a relationship that seems arbitrary and never grounded in mutual acceptance. The point of the encounter is that it is enlivening for the European, stuck in the deteriorating patterns of the old continent, to encounter the youth and enthusiasm of the young African refugee. Don't forget the driver doubles this pattern, as Peter's prejudiced mother also succumbs to the caring and fellow feeling of her Indian neighbor. Against the wave of anti-immigrant sentiment sweeping the continent, this trope offers the counter-argument that the encounter of the two continents is a life-saving breath of fresh air and necessary for the survival of an atrophied Europe. The Connors is another series which deals with working-class life and which has, in its current season, taken as its point of departure the increased burden that COVID has brought to the working class in the U.S., which are now almost synonymous with the working poor. The series was a hit in the 1990s for its co-creator, Roseanne Barr, but after its successful revival, she was removed after a racist tweet. The fictional family is intact, with Roseanne's absence on the show being explained by her death from an opiate overdose, a sneaky way of describing her tweet as the product of a fevered, drug-induced existence. 
In the pilot of this new season, this extended family of Roseanne's husband, two daughters, son, their children, and her sister each struggle due to the COVID shutdown to find work. The Connors' plight acutely mirrors workers in the U.S., largely employed in the service industry, now finding those jobs have disappeared due to accelerated automation and online selling. These workers are encountering a difficult retraining process from semi-skilled to skilled labor, so that in one recounting, a theme park manager must become an electrician, a taxi driver a plumber, and a cook must acquire the expertise of a software manager. Dan, Roseanne's husband, meets a family friend who has found work as a process server, announcing the eviction of working families from their homes. In the conclusion of the first episode, after fruitless attempts at finding work, the family friend appears at the Connor house to announce it is being repossessed. This is the presenting problem for a season in which the Connors' plight increasingly will become the new normal for American workers, who must risk their lives now in search of dangerous work in the midst of a pandemic because of a government that refuses to expend money to take care of its most needy, while its Congress schedules a special session to pass a bill appropriating more and more billions for war and armaments. Finally, NBC Superstore, returning for its sixth and final season, began the season tracking the effects of the COVID first wave from March to July on its diverse workforce in their attempts to both serve a public growing increasingly more hostile in its hoarding of diminishing supplies like toilet paper and a corporate hierarchy that salutes the workers as heroes for showing up for work but is unconcerned with supplying them with the masks they might need to keep safe. The pilot was supposed to be about America Ferrara's leaving the show, having anchored it for five seasons, and with her departure delayed because last season's final episode could not be shot with the show forced to shut production in the first wave. Instead, that storyline was delayed an episode so that the series could focus on how workers in the store coped with the pressures they were and continued to be under in the pandemic. A remarkable instance of a series putting its social worth over more standard entertainment values, as Amy's departure and the resolution of the standard romance between her and her co-worker Jonah took a back seat to a pilot that stressed the overall impact of the crisis on a diverse workforce. The success of these three instances proved not only that working-class television that deals with actual hardship and suffering is possible, but that there is a thirst for it on the part of precarious viewers who at this point constitute the majority of the audience. A few series on television focus either on both the Earth's first inhabitants, the indigenous, now mostly quartered in slums across the world, or on workers, their lives and their daily concerns. The Australian series Mystery Road, now back for its second season, bucks this trend in centering on the scattered remnants of the country's aborigines as they find themselves besieged in new ways by their Anglo colonizers. This is the second season for Mystery Road, a series based on an aboriginal cop, Jay Swan, played by Aaron Peterson, a character already established in two previous films. The Mystery Road that Jay travels is the wide open country of Australia's great and impoverished north, populated by its indigenous and everywhere now the subject of a land grab by the Anglo tenants of its overcrowded cities looking for a property bargain. Season one centered around the death of a ranch hand in one of these towns and illustrated the monopoly on power a ranch owner exercised on the surrounding land and peoples. Part of season two is directed by Warwick Thornton, whose sweet country was an astute examination of how the Australian treatment of its indigenous in 1929 was closer to 19th century American slavery. The film centers around an aboriginal ranch hand who strikes a blow in self-defense against a cruel and tyrannical owner and then must flee into the bush country and eventually stand trial before a white jury for his crime. Warwick brings that understanding of this perpetual oppression to the series, which also highlights through several characters, often revolving around the indigenous female cop Fran, who partners with Jay, the complexities of modern aboriginal life and its encounter with colonial capitalism. A subplot involves a Swedish archaeologist, Sandra, working on a dig in the town that she claims will illustrate the historical contributions of indigenous life and thus serve as an answer to the claims that it is simply primitive. But in much the way anthropology has been criticized as in its attempt to understand other ways of life, it imposes Western concepts on these customs, the locals see her as intrusive. She is neither completely well-meaning nor innocent of the same exploitation that the Anglo-Crystal meth dealers are engaged in. 
course, it's possible to argue that the National Australian Broadcasting Company is engaged in the same process in the symbolic realm and using the country's indigenous as a source of digital profit in creating a globally popular series. But something more is going on here. The series employs the iconography of the Western with Jay Swan as a prototypical silent Western hero, a kind of aboriginal Shane. He's both stoic and blunt, but behind those qualities is the hardiness of a cop who is unwanted in the Anglo law enforcement, represented here by the local racist police chief who disparages him and may himself be implicated in the drug running. He is resented also because he is an independent and powerful aborigine and a stalwart defender of his people. Season 2 illustrates these qualities in his steadfast and dogged pursuit of the Anglo dealers in the service of breaking their hold on the lives of those from which they are growing rich. Late in the season, a secret pad of one of the dealers stresses the lavish lifestyle acquired by the profits of this purveyor of misery. Jay, as opposed to the Western Sheriff, is not a defender of justice and the rule of law in the abstract, but rather a proponent of justice for his people, and they are the source of his strength and resoluteness. Jay's ex-wife, Mary, seems to follow him along the mystery road as she turns up here again, this time involved with an ex-cop who suspiciously offers Jay aid. Mary is a nurse and hospital orderly who cares deeply for her patients and over the course of the season also demonstrates a propensity for police work in aiding Jay. She seems headed in that direction in season three, but the move from caregiver to cop is a questionable one. Jay's daughter's friend, Shervone, functions as a surrogate daughter, also reappears involved with a meth head boyfriend in a relationship she must sort out. The series does a remarkable job of embracing the complexity of a people attempting to cling to their own traditions and forced to transition to a world that is evermore not of their making. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, signing off and breaking glass. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Wake up all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do is put it in our minds. Surely things will work out, they do it every time. Just let it be The world won't get no better We gotta change it Just you and me